And all that we are is by grace. Amen. As I said at the beginning of the service, this is going to be really a biblical survey of sorts. Uh, we are, and if you're following along in uh, even in the Confession, the 1689, uh, it would be profitable to read chapter 2 of the 1689, which is on God and the Holy Trinity. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And uh, we're going to uh, look toward uh, more so harmonizing various passages of Scripture. And so I would even encourage you to jot the references that I give you down uh, so that you can go back and look at them. But if you have your Bibles and you want a good starting place, Exodus chapter 3 would be a good starting place for us. And we're going to look at verses 13 and 15. And so as you turn there, uh, theologian and, and pastor A.W. Tozer, uh, he says in, in, a, in a book called Whatever Happened to Worship, he says, what, we, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And, and really this morning, I'm going to uh, perhaps introduce you to some doctrines, uh, some characteristics of God that have long been neglected in our uh, modern uh, culture, uh, a culture that, a church culture that continually uh, waters down sort of this, uh, the richness of the word and the richness uh, of the, the doctrines contained in the word. And as I work us through these things, my hope is that you'll see their practicality, and this would be more than just uh, I want this to be a sermon, not just some sort of academic lecture. And so prayerfully, as we work through various passages together this morning, my hope is that this, uh, for all of us, collectively stirs our affections for Christ Jesus more. Um, but I want to frame it all uh, and have us thinking about this quote from Tozer. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And this is really something that I would encourage you to give serious consideration on your own or perhaps in your small group uh, this week. Uh, maybe talk about the things that come to your mind when you think of God, when you speak about God, when you come together and you worship God with your church body. And as we go through the sermon this morning, um, I would like you to even compare and contrast that with some of these doctrines that we're working through. But Exodus chapter 3, uh, before I read it, I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're just going to kind of jump right in, and uh, Lord willing, um, be encouraged and strengthened by what we see in God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to open your Word. And God, I pray that you would help me to rightly divide your word, God, and I pray that you would help us all to strive together, Lord, uh, in what it is that we're working through, and, uh, and we pray that this would happen for the glory of your name and the edification of your church, your saints, Lord, and we pray this in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're jotting notes down, uh, the very first thing I would like you to pay attention to and this is grounded in Exodus chapter 3, is that God is self-sufficient and He is unchangeable. God is self-sufficient and He is unchangeable. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, we kind of worked through this, and I would encourage you even to go back to the sermon that uh, I preached on this text earlier this year. Um, Moses, uh, uh, this is his introduction to God, if you will. It says, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel... 
And I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. God, as he lays out for Moses his compassion for his people and his great rescue plan for those that have been the, uh, the Hebrews that have been enslaved by the Israelites, he introduces himself through this unconsumed burning bush as I am who I am, right? I am who I am. Again, I, I spoke about this earlier this year as we worked through the first few chapters of the book of Exodus, But we need to remember this as we think through the doctrine of God and the Holy Trinity this morning. God is declaring to Moses that he is self-sufficient. He's self-sufficient. He has self-existence. This is known in the theological world as the doctrine of aseity. And if you've never heard of the doctrine of aseity, that's because this is often perhaps one of the most neglected uh, doctrines as it relates to God uh, in modern day. But this this doctrine means that God isn't dependent on anyone or anything for his existence, nor is he dependent upon anyone for his authority or his power. Furthermore, in, in creating us, he didn't gain anything. He wasn't discontent. God wasn't up in the cosmos discontent before he created us. He wasn't lonely before he created us. God didn't create us because he needed a friend. Right? All of this is, is related to God's aseity, and as we see, it's related also to his immutability, which is that God is unchanging. A theologian named John Owen, he says it this way, God was and is eternally in himself all that he will be, all that he can be unto eternity. For where there is infinite being and infinite goodness, there's infinite blessedness and happiness where nothing can be added. All this was absolutely the same in God before he created anything. Our our good and gracious and holy God revealing himself as I am, I am who I am, demonstrates to Moses that that he's self-existent, and that he doesn't need permission from any creature to do as he pleases and to do all that glorifies himself, which we know all that glorifies God and that happens to us is ultimately, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, it's for our good, right? God getting glory, God doing what he pleases and receiving glory is eternally good for us. They're not at odds with one another. They're friends. They're companions. Right? But the I am, he doesn't need permission to do as he pleases. He doesn't need permission to do all that glorifies himself. God gives an account to absolutely no one. Right? In this Exodus passage, God was commissioning Moses to stand against the, the, the most powerful man in Egypt. 
And Moses, as we saw when I preached on this text months ago, Moses, he was a type of Christ. When we look at Moses and the role that he played in the Exodus, we should think of God in Christ Jesus ultimately rescuing us from the slavery of sin. But this, this, this calling on Moses' life to be the mouthpiece, to be the instrument that God would choose to use to rescue the uh, Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery, this was a, an insurmountable task. Right? This was a bigger-than-life sort of task. Unless the Lord God is the one that's commissioning it. Right? And God speaks to Moses, and, and he declares his own autonomy to him. God's free. God is truly free. His will is not bound like ours is. It's not manipulated like ours, but it's focused on his own good purposes. And our free God is, in fact, a good God who, who, who chose before the foundation of the world, and we'll look at that some more next week, to bring himself glory through the rescuing of his people. And again, God didn't, he didn't need the permission of Pharaoh to rescue the Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery the same way that he didn't need Moses to be the instrument that he would use to do that. He invited Moses. It was, it was the joy of Moses to participate in such a significant event. Now, those of you who know the story, you, you, know, that, you know that well. Right? And we, we see this sort of story over and over and over in the Old Testament, right? preaching to us this, this redemptive story about how, how God in his own good purpose chose to save his people through Christ Jesus. And our God is self-sufficient. And self-sufficiency, it necessitates immutability, which is that God is unchanging. That's what that word means. Immutability is God is unchanging. One of the things that this should help us to realize, a lot of things, a lot of um, practical applications for this, but one of the things that the, the unchangeability of God should help us realize is that God is not reactive. He's not reactive. Right? A change can't be created in God by the actions of his creatures. If so, this would mean that God is changeable. Yet the scriptures say things like this, God's omniscient. That word means he's all-knowing. Right? God's omnipresent, which means that he's, he's everywhere. There's no place that his creatures can go that, that can escape his presence. He's omnipotent, which means that he's all-power. He's truly powerful. Right? This, self, this sort of God, this self-sufficient, unchanging God of the Bible, he's not biting his nails hoping that things will work out, and when creatures do the foolish things that creatures do, he frantically reacts to kind of get them out of the muck. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not reactive. He's not caught by surprise. He's not looking down at the way the world's going, given the present circumstances, and saying, well, shoot, I wish it didn't play out that way. Our God, your kids learn this in catechism class, our God can do all his holy will. He does all his holy will. We lose perspective of that as adults. But my son, who's not even a Christian, right, believes that when he says it. God can do it. He does all his holy will. It's in our faithlessness that that, that, that gets clouded for us. 
He says, I am who I am. At a very basic level, God doesn't reveal himself to Moses as I was who I was or I will be who I will be. I am who I am. This is a fixed name. It's a fixed name, and it speaks to a fixed, eternal character. And as we read the Scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what we see is not a God who changes. What we see is not a God who is dependent upon any man, but a God who is eternally the same and is self-sufficient. From the beginning to the end, the Bible makes the self-sufficiency and the immutability, the unchangeability of God very clear. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Right? There was never a point that God started. Right? And God, everything that has been created flows from our God who is in the beginning. And He has a right over His creation. And He's sovereign, as we'll see, over His creation. But in the beginning of God speaks to God's self-existence, His self-sufficiency. Job chapter 41, verses 9 to 11, this is... Uh, God speaking back to um, Job. He says, Behold, the hope of a man is false. He's laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Right? Paul echoes this. Paul, in, in the book of Romans, he works through this pretty hefty theological treaty in Romans chapter 1 all the way to Romans chapter 10, and it is as if he couldn't help himself. He breaks out in doxology. He breaks out in worship, and he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Right? There's echoes of Job there. And there's a proper worshipful response to wading through the theological depth for the Apostle Paul of the first 10, 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And in here you can see why this is relevant that we're spending time working through this even though for many of us this may be stretching. We want to worship God rightly. We want to worship the God who is, not the God who we have created, or not the God that we, we project ourselves onto. And we see certainly Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. We see the, the preacher to the Hebraic church, he says, Jesus, right, who we know, and we'll talk about the triune nature of our God. He says, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Right? Jesus in his deity, I'm not speaking about his humanity, but Jesus in his deity is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Listen how the 1689 puts it. God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. Right? This is what God this is b b before creating us. Having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone and unto himself all sufficient. Not standing in any need of any creature which he 
hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the giver. We are not the giver. He alone, he is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom all things are all things. Chapter 2, paragraph 2. Or in the first paragraph, speaking of God as most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable, right? It's unchanging, his unchanging and most righteous will for his own glory. We saw that as I read our call to worship in Ephesians chapter 1, right? Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If I bottom line this for us, and I'm hesitant to do it because I don't want to, there's so much here that we, we could spend weeks and weeks and months just trying to work through just this particular doctrine, but what is a bottom line significance of this for us? I think we find in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Our good, gracious, merciful long-suffering God who's abundant in goodness and truth and who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, according to the Scripture, has set His affection on His people before the foundation of the world and is not dependent on or changed or stirred by any creature. And that's good news for us because it means that He saves according to His good fixed pleasure and purpose, and he does so for eternity, right? We're saved to the uttermost. This means for us, the, because we serve a, a, a self-sufficient and unchanging God, we know that the rules don't change on us, right? The, the rug never gets pulled out from under us. Promises aren't broken. He's a keeper of his word. There's no fine print. There's no hidden agenda. Our salvation is dependent wholly upon a self-sufficient, unchanging God. And if you're in Christ, this is because God is fulfilling a commitment he made to you and signed in the blood of Jesus Christ. He's self-sufficient and he's unchanging. And, And that character is the basis on which we can trust that we've been saved. It's the, that's the basis at which we can trust that the Holy Spirit that we read about at the very beginning of the service that Paul calls the guarantee really is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of the glorious grace of our triune God. So God's self-sufficient and God's unchanging. Secondly, and you'll see some overlap here, but there's certain things I wanted to make sure I pointed out to you this morning but God is his attributes. God is his attributes. John chapter 4, if you want to flip over there, verses 7 to 9. John chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. You'll be familiar with this passage. 
John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Right? We're, we live in a culture that is obs- obsessed with love, right? Get this, verse 8, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Right? John is testifying here, truthfully testifying, that God is love. Right? This is one way of saying that God is simple. Right? This is known to theologians as the doctrine of divine simplicity. I'm trying to introduce you to some of this terminology. And by simple... I don't mean that God is easy for us to figure out. I don't mean um, that he's completely comprehensible. That's not how the word is used in this sense. What theologians, when theologians say God is simple, what they mean is that he's not made up of all different parts. He's not made up of all different components. God doesn't possess this thing or that thing. He doesn't go... Uh, on his way picking up skills. He doesn't go along his way picking up various abilities. Love isn't something that God has acquired. It's not like it some third party that he is is grabbing and said, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna try this love thing out. Right? This means that when we think about God and his deity, we don't divide him up. It's not that God possesses the ability to love and is sometimes loving Right? It's that God is love eternally and perfectly so. God is love eternally and perfectly so. Our confession says that God is without body, parts, or passions. That's the first paragraph of chapter 2. So when we think about God's attributes, and I've mentioned some earlier, all those omnis, right? omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. Right? We need to keep in mind that He is His attributes. Everything that is in God is God. And he, remember his self-sufficiency, he derives his attributes from no one. He's truly his attributes. And again, he's unchanging. Therefore, his attributes never improve and they never diminish because to do so would be to strike at God's perfection. Listen, this means that God can't love you any more than he loves you right now. That's good news because I mess it up right? God is truly love, right? So God is love eternally and perfectly. God's also, and we're going to look at holiness in a minute, but he's holy eternally and perfectly. God is wrathful over sin eternally and perfectly. And when in scripture we see the wrath of God being poured out on, say, a whole wicked world through a flood or Sodom and Gomorrah for the sin of sodomy, he isn't ceasing in his love. God is his attributes all the time, even though for us as creatures on an experiential level, we may experience an attribute to a greater degree than at other times. Why is this important? Hopefully you see the reason why already, but there are some who, who seek to even pit the members of the Godhead against each other. All right? The Old Testament God was a God of wrath. Let's get rid of the Old Testament. And Jesus in the New Testament, he was all about love. 
Our culture and even some teachers and leaders in the church seek to pit what we read about God in the Old Testament with what we read about Jesus in the New Testament. But this is a, a gross mishandling of Scripture on its best day. And it, 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 on its worst day is an arrogant twisting of Scripture to make God more acceptable to our culture, even to our church culture. But our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they were present at the flood, and all the members said amen. Right? They were present at this cosmic judgment in the same way that the love of, it was the love of God. It was the love of the Father and the love of the Spirit that even sent forth Jesus, right? One of the very first memory verses that we memorize as kids is John 3.16, right? right? Christ came because of the love of the Father. Right? The Spirit applied the person and work of Christ to our life because of the love of the Father. They were all in agreement in this covenant made before the foundation of the world called the covenant of redemption about how this stuff would play out. But for God so loved the world right, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right, it's also practice, practical for us because we live in a culture that doesn't understand what virtuous living is. Right, we can define it clearly. We can define virtuous living clearly only when we're God-centered. Right? One theologian puts it this way, properly speaking, God is good by virtue of God, not goodness. He's wise by virtue of God, not wisdom. He's powerful by virtue of God, not power. He's loved by virtue of God, not love. There's nothing in God that is not identical with his divinity, nothing that is not just God himself. Right? God is is his attributes. And it is in understanding something like this that we can see why there's so much divide in our present day culture, right? In our world as it relates to ethics, as it relates to virtue. Many of us often strive to be ethical or virtuous. And the problem with that is that we strive to do it apart from God, who is his attributes. So do you want to be a just person? God is just. We look to God. Right? Do you want to love? God is love. Look to God. Do you want to be wise? Look to God. You can't have these things in, in the biblical sense apart from God. God is his attributes. Third, and I've mentioned this already, God's holy. Right? It deserves special attention, but God's holy. Right, A fixed attribute of God that's often neglected in evangelicalism and in our evangelizing of people that are not Christians. But in the year King Uzziah of his death, if you flipped over to Isaiah chapter 6, you see Isaiah received a vision from the Lord in which he brought, he's brought to the throne room of God. Verses 2 and 3. It says, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. In other words, they look freaky. <clears throat> and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right? We, we see the song 
of the seraphim here. And in Trinitarian format, and we're going to discuss God being triune in just a moment, they declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of the glory of our triune God. And we see this refrain in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8 as well. That word holy here is sacred. It's set apart. Our, our God is seated on a throne of victory, high above the, the sinfulness and the infirmities of man. He, he's the one at whose presence makes even holy men fall down as if they're dead. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. He's a God who dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. He's a God who is His holiness, who hates sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 7. Again, holiness isn't just how we describe God. God is His attributes. God is holy. Right? It's a perfection of God. He doesn't possess holiness. He is holiness. And in His holiness, He's uncompromising. He's uncompromising. And God's saving us. He didn't change the standard by which we may enter into His presence. Now, God didn't lower the bar. He didn't change His essence so that we may come near to the unapproachable light. Our God, who's truly holy and is truly love, He sent His Son, right, the second person of the Trinity, to maintain the righteous demands of His person. God's holiness demanded the shedding of blood from a perfect sacrifice. The shedding of blood of His own Son and His humanity. As Christians, we're given the opportunity to draw near to God, not because God decided to throttle back his person. Not because God decided to throttle back his standards. Right? The unapproachable light became approachable to us because those of us in Christ Jesus are clothed in his righteousness. Right? The, the perfect righteousness of Christ, it meets the perfect uncompromising standard of God's holiness. Right, reflecting on God's holiness, it, it should remind us that we're not like God, and praise God for that, right? right? We should tremble with reverence. We should tremble with gratitude toward a God who in love and in kindness chose to provide reconciliation for us to Him without compromising His person, His essence, And he didn't do this because we evoked some sense of compassion in God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? We were dead. And God is compassionate. It's not that he, we evoke that compassion. It's that he is compassion and love and grace and mercy and holy perfectly and eternally so. And in these perfections, he set out to adopt us into his family. He set out to seek us and save us in Jesus based on his good an unchanging character. Right? He set out to meet the demands that His holiness required, and He did so perfectly, and He clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus perfectly, just as we saw Him clothe Adam and Eve after the first transgression in the garden. We can speak to God. We can have fellowship with God. We can delight and enjoy God because our holy God 
acted in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to meet the requirements for fellowship and harmony with Him. God's holy. Fourth, God is one and eternally and co-equally exist in three persons. God is one and eternally and co-equally exist in three persons. That's not too hard, right? Uh, Christians have always confessed that God is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We don't worship three gods. That's tritheism. We worship one God. And this one God eternally and co-equally exists in three persons. And we see this as, as, as the sweeping testimony of Scripture. Genesis, go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was, out, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, right? We see the Holy Spirit of God active in the creation of everything. We also see the Son active in creation. Listen how Paul puts it, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We see the Son credited as the creator of all things. So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also see the testimony that Christ gives about himself. All right, John chapter 8, verses 57 and 59, it says, The Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There's that I am language again that God used to describe himself to Moses through an unconsumed burning bush. How did the Jews respond? They said, oh, okay, that makes sense. No, they picked up their stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Jesus was claiming equality with God. Jesus was claiming to be eternal. And Christ even gives instructions for us to make disciples, not just in his name, but in the name of our triune God. That's why we give Trinitarian baptisms. Right? But on the basis of the authority of Christ Jesus, verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28, right? Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? On the basis of that authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. All right? And if it seems like there's a tension or a mystery there, you would be correct. All right, in our own sin-polluted, finite understanding of things, this sort of orthodox declaration doesn't make sense to us. Yet we confess it, along with the biblical writers and along with Christians all throughout church history. All right, one theologian says this, he says, This doctrine of the Trinity is and must forever be a divine mystery. It's a misconception of the creeds of the church 
to think that the creeds and our confession was intended to explain the mystery. Historically, the opposite was really the case. The church maintained the mystery by maintaining that God is in one sense one and in another sense three. It asserted that God was ultimately both one and three, one essence or substance and three persons or subsistences. The creeds of the church, and get this, the creeds of the church, why should we have creeds? The creeds of the church fence this mystery. They don't explain it. The 1689 says it this way, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. It's chapter three or chapter two, paragraph three. Why is this important? The doctrine of the Trinity is perhaps the defining characteristic between Christianity and cults. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, Muslims, World Missionary Society, Church of God, all get this wrong. Although the word Trinity is not in the Bible, it's a word that captures and harmonizes what's clearly taught in Scripture, that God is one in essence and three in persons. We don't need to go beyond that. We don't need to go, we don't need to try to go beyond what the Bible gives us in explaining this. And the Orthodox creeds and confessions only serve to protect this doctrine. We see the Trinitarian function all throughout Scripture, right? Our, our triune God was, as we've seen, active in creation, communicates the eternality of each person and is the name by which we make disciples. Our, our triune God, he, he made this, I've referenced it already, but made this covenant of redemption in eternity past that the Father would save a particular people for His glory and their good. And this covenant required that the Father plan and decree. The Son was who's equally God, was to meet the requirements for such a salvation. The Spirit, equally God, would impute, would cast on sin onto the Son and righteousness onto God's people, sealing them with the blood of Christ for all eternity. We worship and we serve and we are saved by a triune God. And those members are co-equal and they're eternal and they're one in essence. That's what we confess, what we've always confessed as the Christian church. And then finally, God is sovereign. And I'm going to spend a lot more time on this next week, but our God is a God who's sovereign over all things. And he's sovereign over the good and bad, accomplishing that which is good even out of that which is evil. Somebody, I don't even, I think it, Joni Erickson Tata, I think perhaps, she says, um, God accomplishes that which he loves out of that which he hates. He can bring good out of wickedness. Isaiah 45, verses 5 to 7, God says, I am the Lord, 
and there's no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there's none besides me. I am the Lord, and there's no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Unsettling passage, huh? Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, right? We know the story of Joseph. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Isaiah 46, 8 and 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am the Lord, there's no other. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. There's nothing beyond the grasp of God's sovereignty. Our next breath is taken because God said breathed. He declared that we should breathe. You're here this morning because God has ordained for you to be here, to sit in the very seat that you're in. We serve a God whose plan and purposes for this world can't be thwarted. See, Job declared that after immense suffering in Job chapter 42, verse 2. We serve a God who Isaiah has said declared the end from the beginning. And what was in the beginning? We go back to Genesis 1. God. In the beginning, God. Our triune God was in the beginning. Not man. Not man's rebellion. Not Satan. Not the stars. Not the heavens. Not an atmosphere. In the beginning, God. God declared the end from the beginning. And he didn't do that because he peeked into the future and is reacting based on what he sees. To subscribe to that would be, if you were to follow the logic, to strike at the heart of God's attributes, his perfections, and particularly his unchanging character. God's not reacting. God's not responding. His good purpose that he set in place in the beginning is being accomplished in his timing and in his way, and this is good. It's good that God God doesn't react to the fickleness of fallen creatures. It's good that God isn't taken by surprise. It's good that God's absolutely sovereign over all things because God is good and God is unchanging. He's not like us. Our good, unchanging triune God, He's he's sovereign. So may our worship of Him reflect that. A few takeaways for us this morning, And and I know that that, was a lot. But a few things that I want us to kind of walk away with. The first is what we believe about God, and this is in your worship guide, so don't fret about jotting this down. What we believe about God impacts how we worship God. We should desire to know how God reveals himself in Scripture because we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. What we believe about God impacts how we worship, and we should desire to know how God reveals himself in Scripture because we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. That alone is justification enough for us as Christians who say that we love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength to pursue knowing that God we say we love. And the doctrine of God is practical for us, and again, this is by no means exhaustive, but just some takeaways. His self-sufficiency is a saity, Reminds us there's no one more powerful than our God. He's dependent upon no one. 
His unchangeableness reminds us that he will keep us and bring us home. His simplicity, right? Divine simplicity should remind us that his love, holiness, sovereignty, goodness, wrath, etc., never diminish or increase because he's truly his attributes. His holiness should increase our reverence for him and cause us to magnify him for drawing near to us sinful people through the person and work of Christ. His Trinitarian nature should humble us and cause us to marvel at the mystery of his persons and grow in our desire to know each person of our triune God. And his sovereignty should cause us to rest, right? That should cause us to rest, rest in all that comes to pass, knowing that there's not one part in all creation that is not in subjection to his divine will. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us in your word, God. And Lord, we desire to know you, Lord, increase our desire to know you, Lord, and to search your word, Lord, this special revelation that you've preserved for us so that we may know you and magnify you. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.